The new EU Confidential podcast will get started right after a quick message from this week's sponsor. A message from ExxonMobil. Carbon capture technologies are critical for lowering global CO2 emissions. As a leader in the field, ExxonMobil is working on ways to make carbon capture technology scalable, more efficient and more affordable, so it can be deployed at industrial sites worldwide. These include using fuel cells that could capture up to 90% of the CO2 from large industrial sites and even capturing CO2 directly from the air. Learn more about the potential of carbon capture at energyfactor.eu. Last night, uh, the leaders discussed enlargement. Unfortunately, a few member states are not ready yet. This is why we didn't manage to reach a positive decision. Personally, I think it was a mistake. Welcome to the new EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and you just heard Donald Tusk, the President of the European Council, commenting on the decision by EU leaders not to start membership talks with Albania and North Macedonia. That decision, or non-decision, came after the leaders held hours of talks late into the night at last week's EU summit. On the face of it, it was a discussion about two small nations at the other end of the continent, but leaders got very worked up about it. It was for some a discussion about the very nature of the European Union itself. We'll get to that in a moment, but first we have a bit of breaking news here in Brussels. France has nominated a new commissioner. Thierry Breton, a former finance minister under Jacques Chirac, and a private sector veteran who's currently CEO of IT company Atos. His nomination opens up the possibility of an end to the stalemate here in Brussels as we wait for the new commission to be confirmed, but it also raises the prospect of more fireworks with the European Parliament and tension within the commission if such a big beast moves into its headquarters. So that's something we're sure to be talking about on the podcast in the weeks to come. But we have plenty of other things to talk about this week with our podcast panel. We got together yesterday to discuss outgoing Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker's legacy, the situation in Syria, EU enlargement, and yes, just a little bit of Brexit. We have Rim Montaz in Paris. Hi, Rim. Bonjour. We have Matt Karnichnik back from the US and back in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Good evening. And Annabelle Dixon in London. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. Okay, let's get down to it on uh, enlargement, which is a kind of very um, clinical, bureaucratic word for this whole idea of the European Union taking in uh, new members. Obviously, if you were listening to last week's podcast, uh, you know a lot of it was about uh, the departure of a member, yet another attempt to move forward with Brexit. But actually, more time was taken up with the question of whether two new countries should be invited to uh, begin talks to join the EU, Albania and North Macedonia. Uh, They couldn't agree. The opposition was led by France. It was very much France in the the driving seat of saying now is not the time, Emmanuel Macron in particular. The reaction from the region has been very negative, as you might imagine. Uh, Matt, what's the reaction been from Berlin and, and what's your take on it? Well, I think there's been a lot of disappointment here because the German government has been engaged in the Balkans for quite a long time. Merkel, over the past 10 years in particular, I'd say, has made, you know, getting the Balkans on a stable path one of one of her priorities. So I think that they really would have liked to have seen a positive signal come out of this 
councils. So th there, there was a lot of disappointment on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, there's so much else going on at the moment that unfortunately it's one of these things that I think will will quickly uh, be forgotten until until there's another crisis. It certainly feels to me like it was a big missed opportunity and we're already seeing the consequences of the decision uh, with the snap election being called in Macedonia and various rumblings out of uh, Belgrade and, and other parts of the region about, you know, maybe uh, looking more towards Russia in the future, uh, continuing to open the door to China and so on. So I, I think this could be looked at in years to come as, as a major blunder uh, by, by the EU. Yeah, that's certainly how Jean-Claude Juncker described it, as a, a grave historic mistake. And just as somebody who lived in the region, still has, has friends there, you know, the reaction was, was very negative. A lot of it aimed very much at Emmanuel Macron, uh, people who feel themselves to be very much in the pro-EU camp in the Balkans, feeling that they were let down, that uh, the prospect of EU membership is a big incentive for these countries to undergo the kind of reforms they uh, would like to see anyway, such as you know more democracy, more rule of law, and uh, they feel that if you take away the carrot of EU membership, then the prospects of those things happening are much reduced. But uh, Reem, you know, you were at the summit with us. Macron, in some ways, seems to love playing the role of the spoiler, and he almost seemed to to kind of relish it here as well, right? He definitely relished it. And he was also on fire in terms of uh, the metaphors he was using. He, at one point, uh, compared the EU to a, a sandwich, uh, like a baguette, uh, that with a little bit of butter that we were trying to spread on even thinner. And then all you would end up with is kind of a stale bread without butter uh, flavor. Uh, if that metaphor was uh, not enough for you, he also came up with another metaphor, that of a house, a shared house. And that's when he brought in, uh, you know, the budget. He keeps saying, you know, everyone wants to keep their uh, contributions to the EU budget to like 1%, but the reality is they want to bring in their little friends and they don't want to, and that's how he put it, they don't want to contribute to fixing a door or, or changing a light bulb in the common house and that that is just not acceptable. Um, he had absolutely no qualms about being, uh, you know, against the majority. Uh, he feels like he is right and that history will prove him right. Uh, he, f he actually said as much that he thinks that the EU is already very difficult uh, to manage and to, you know, decision making in the EU is very difficult already with only 27 or 28 me members. He definitely doesn't think that with 30 or 31 or 32 members, it's going to get any better. And with respect to, you know, the reaction or the disappointment of uh, the Western Balkan countries, he seemed to want to make the case that actually telling them or opening up accession and then dragging it out for 10 years sort of is worse than actually saying not right now. Because what he keeps saying is that on North Macedonia, he's not saying no, never. He's just saying just not right now. 
Yeah, but the problem is, is that they made promises in particular to North Macedonia. And, you know, they really went above and beyond to change their constitution, to change their name. And then they've essentially been served up this, uh, you know, what people there would consider a shit sandwich by Macron. Okay, well, I think we could probably talk about this a long time. I certainly could, but I don't want to test the, the patience of our, of our listeners too much. But it does sound like they will um, circle back to this issue at some point. I think Charles Michel, the incoming uh, European Council president has an idea to try and see if he can broker some kind of deal that will allow uh, France to kind of lift its block. Uh, but I think we're not going to get to that point until possibly sometime next year uh, at the earliest. Anyway, we'll move on to Jean-Claude Juncker, who, as I mentioned, um, was uh, very critical of that decision or non-decision. And it was also Juncker's last European Council summit, probably, unless we end up with an emergency one on Brexit. Um, and so he was bowing out from, from the summit last week and uh, was sounding uh, pretty emotional as he uh, made his farewell. Let's have a, a quick listen. It's in French, but we have highly educated listeners. I'm sure they can get the gist of it. So uh, that did prompt me to think about what history will make of Jean-Claude Juncker and also how he's viewed in the different uh, European capitals. Annabel, let's, let's start with you. Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister, who is not Jean-Claude Juncker's biggest fan, has suggested in the past that the Brexit referendum result could have been different if Juncker was not European Commission president at the time of the vote. Uh, do you think there's any truth in that? Um, well, I think that's probably going a little bit far. I think it was a little bit more than Jean-Claude Juncker that um, prompted the Brexit vote. But it's certainly fair to say that among certain parts of the press, he is the bogeyman. But I, th I think there is a more nuanced um, view of, of Juncker now, actually. Funnily enough, probably Brexit means that we know more about him than we might have done had we not become so obsessed with Europe in, over the last few years. And actually, I think Remain has quite liked his eccentricities. Matt, how's he? You've had a, you've tangled with Juncker once or twice, have you not? What, what do you make of him? Juncker and, loves me. What are you talking? <laughs> right, yeah, that's 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 what he told me. Um, what do you make of him? And how do how? I mean, I think he's certainly seen as a, a kind of friend of Germany, right? I mean, he's, he doesn't seem to be a week goes by he's not in the German media. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that's part of the problem is that he has this almost kind of iconic status in the German-speaking world. He's obviously very fluent in German, so he has you know, maybe uh, something of a, a different relationship uh, to the populations in both uh, Germany and Austria. But, you know, I, I would agree more with, with Orban. And I, I, re I remember it at, at the time that uh, he, he was sort of the epitome of this old style European federalist, you know, the type of person who was basically a poster child for the Brexit campaign from the beginning. And you know, at the end of the day, he's presided over Brexit. Uh, it's, it's worth remembering that. And I think beyond that, his other accomplishments are, are few and, and far between. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I should say, if our listeners are big Juncker fans and, and want to disagree, uh, drop us a line, podcast at politico.eu, and we'll be sure to feature the best of them next week. But um, let's leave Juncker there. And as I say, we can we can come back to him before he bows out, because he's going to be in office a bit, a bit longer than he thought, because the von der Leyen Commission is not ready to take office. But let's, let's do Brexit. 
Uh, we had a little bit of feedback from a listener who said we've done an awful lot of Brexit recently. Uh, you know, he should try working here, having to <laughs> having to write about it all the time. But the point is, is, is well taken, but it is very much still top of the agenda at the moment. Uh, and, it, you know, very much affects the EU as well as the UK. So, Annabelle, can you give us the tightest potted summary possible of where things stand right now? Talking of being bored of Brexit, I don't know if you saw the hashtag that was um, running on the night before the deal vote. It was bored of Brexit, get the deal done. And um, everyone over Twitter, well, UK Twitter at least, was saying, let's just back this deal so we can talk about something else. Um, Amen. So obviously, a sign Twitter is not necessarily in tune with MP opinion. Um, <laughs> it could be a bit like Juncker. People will miss it once it's gone. <laughs> yeah, that's true. What, what are we going to write about? I mean, it's good for business, isn't it? Mm. I mean, as, as things currently stand, the deal has not gone through. The Prime Minister didn't get his meaningful vote. It got to what's known as a second reading and the sort of parliamentary stage. But that's really not much of a sign of whether he's got the support of MPs. And um, so now we're, of course, into extension territory. And I guess over to the EU at the moment to find out if they're going to grant that extension that the Prime Minister said he would never ask for. Uh, do you think that he knows what he wants from, from the EU? Or do we know what, what he wants? Short extension, long extension? You know, what would be most helpful to him? Um, I, I think he wants a short extension. But I, th I think there's a bit of a battle going on in number 10 about what to do. So whether to go hard for an election or whether to try and get that, have a short extension. So try and give people a cliff edge to make a decision. Do you have any sense? Do you think it could get through this parliament? I think there's a chance, but I think it's going to be very, very close. OK, well, thanks. I, I, I should probably, you know, that was probably longer than I, than, I thought we could, than I thought. But, you know, once you get started, it's hard to stop. Should we do very quick, uh, you know, lightning interventions from, from, from Paris and Berlin? What's Germany saying and how do you think this is all going to end up? Uh, Matt, you go first. Well, I think in general here, they just want it to be over. They uh, are willing to do an extension, a short extension, a long extension, wh whatever it takes. Mm. Rim? Yeah, Macron does not want uh, a long extension. We're talking about, they're saying very specifically here, they want a week or two or a few weeks, not more than that. Okay, let's move along. And uh, as we know, Ursula von der Leyen wants to have a geopolitical commission moving on from Juncker's political commission. So we can try to be our own little uh, mini geopolitical commission here and, and talk a bit about, about Syria this week. Uh, Reem, you wanted to talk about this one. What's, what are your thoughts? Well, I was very struck by what Macron said on Friday at the end of the summit. He said that he, Johnson and Merkel were going to meet with Erdogan in coming weeks. It was very uh, sort of uh, unspecified um, to discuss what NATO can do. And it just really struck me how uh, just out of the loop, disconnected, um, irrelevant, it all just sounded. Uh, Europe... You know, the UK and France have actual troops on the ground in Syria, and they are nowhere to be seen in terms of trying to shape where we're going next. And yesterday we saw that it was Putin and Erdogan who, you know, got together, sat down for six hours, figured out what might work for them, came up with some deal, and now they're going to implement it. Uh, the US has pulled out, so the French and the British have to pull out. They can't stay in, in, in Syria alone. And it just really 
underlines uh, how powerless and how lacking in strategic autonomy Europe really is at this stage, even when it comes to you know the two member states until Brexit happens that are permanent members of the uh, Security Council. Matt, on, in Germany, we had this uh, surprise intervention from the Defence Minister, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer. What was the proposal and, and how has that gone down? Well, she suggested sort of out of the blue that uh, Germany spearhead an effort to create a kind of safety zone in uh, northern Syria there on, on the border and uh, caught the SPD, the coalition partner, the so- Social Democrats, a bit by surprise. And, uh, you know, she was uh, almost immediately shot down by uh, both the SPD and the opposition who's saying, you know, of course, this kind of thing would need uh, the approval of the of the Bundestag, of the German parliament, and, and, and so on. And uh, very quickly, the kind of German political establishment reverted to the norm, which is that they want something to be done in all of these conflicts. They just don't want to do it themselves. Yeah, it's just striking. We're going to have a NATO defense ministers meeting here in Brussels this week. But uh, as Reem says, I mean, you know, Turkey and Russia already got together and kind of created facts on the ground. Uh, but let's um, move on now to this week's interview. And uh, Matt... Uh, You were our interviewer this week. Uh, Tell us who you were talking to. That's right. I spoke with Marco Aguriano, who is uh, Spain's EU minister. He will be familiar to many in Brussels because he spent more than 30 years there working for a long time uh, for the parliament in various roles and also as a uh, director general at the Commission for External Affairs. But he's interesting now because he has been the right-hand man to Joseph Borrell for quite a number of years. And so he has interesting insights about Borrell, what he might do, and the sort of outlook for for Europe going forward, and and also why Borrell uh, took up this challenge at the end of his career. I met with him at the uh, Spanish embassy here in Berlin, which is an old uh, fascist building that was uh, part of Albert Speer's vision of Germania for Germany, uh, which was interesting in the context of Aguriano because his parents actually fled Franco's Spain in the 60s, uh, which is why he was uh, born in, in, in Brussels. Okay, thanks, Matt. We kick off talking about the latest news from Catalonia. Recently, as you probably know, the Spanish Supreme Court decided to put 12 Catalan leaders behind bars. That decision prompted protests on the streets of Barcelona, and it's a debate that we cover from both sides on Politico.eu. But here's part of what Aguirano, who's a member of the Spanish government, has to say about that, as well as the EU enlargement debate and what we can expect from his compatriot and close colleague, Joseph Borrell. The situation in Catalonia Mm -hmm. seems to be going a bit sort of back on the boil, uh, one might say. In recent days, with uh, the protests that we saw on Monday following the court decisions there, uh, what has been the response in Europe to the situation in Catalonia? It's been uh, very mild, I would say. Uh, Very, uh, I mean, as if uh, our partners were... um, knowledgeable of, uh, of the situation, expecting what would happen, uh, worried, worried, of course, by any element of 
violence and, and people being wanted on the streets, but it's hardly the first time that there are demonstrations in countries uh, in Europe with uh, people demonstrating and, and people being wanted. Uh, if anything, uh, some, some partners were, I would say, a bit impressed by the number of years of condemnation of some of the people who were judged. 13 years looks like a long time, uh, but it's also true that in my country... You mean impressed in a positive way or... Impressed uh, saying that, oh, well, that's a lot. Oh, I like see. that mm -hmm. kind of... Mm -hmm. Surprise, maybe, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's really a lot. These were the convictions for sedition. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, it could have been much more if the rebe rebellion had been uh, considered to, to be uh, what was, what was uh, exerted or done at the time. Do you think, um, though, that as, as this situation evolves, that, that Europe should f have a role or become, become involved in some way? Well, this is an internal problem. Uh, we have a constitution which is recognized uh, everywhere as uh, extremely democratic by all the international organizations. So we have uh, an internal question to, to deal with. Uh, we don't see any role by Europe except uh, giving sometimes good advices and uh, helping us uh, to make sure that uh, everywhere in Europe human rights, legality and, uh, and the rule of law are respected, which it is in Spain. I'd like to come to another issue that's been uh, sort of top of mind in, in Brussels recently and, and which has been sort of shrouded in, in controversy in recent days, and, and that's the question of enlargement, yes. uh, which uh, was effectively decided last week yes. at, at the Council with uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, deciding to, to block the enlargement. Do you think that was a mistake? I think it was a mistake not to open negotiations with North Macedonia, yes. And I think uh, we could have told Albania exactly what we expected from Albania in the next six months so that we could maybe open negotiations with them in, the, in, in six months from now. I think it was a mistake towards North Macedonia because I think that North Macedonia has shown uh, the will and the efforts necessary to go on, on the uh, path towards uh, some kind of European integration, possibly and ideally uh, joining the European Union at some stage. It has done so by not only agreeing after 29 years with Greece on the change of name, which would satisfy both the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia and Greece, at least the majority in each country, but also because this entailed a constitutional change of a certain uh, uh, dimension in North Macedonia. It entailed also an agreement with Bulgaria, a question of different minorities there, and uh, also because the government of Mr. Zaev has shown a very clear pro-European path towards uh, the integration of the European Union, favorable. And, and constructive, and I think we had to give a signal uh, to North Macedonia and through North Macedonia to the region, to the Western Balkans, saying that uh, whoever is really going to make efforts and is making efforts, making reforms, those ones or any other reform needed on justice, on transparency, on fight against corruption, on you know all these elements that we normally ask uh, to our partners, is going to get back a signal positively. 
uh, acknowledging it and uh, and uh, and encouraging uh, that country or those countries towards uh, that path. So I think we should have done that for North Macedonia and its own merits. Uh, which we can recognize and see, but also as a signal to the others, including Albania, of course. What about Kosovo? Oh, which is, uh, I, I'll come question. to that. Um, so, you know, I mean, uh, we tried, Spain and others, we tried a middle way, which was to start with North Macedonia and uh, explain clearly why it had to be differentiated between North Macedonia and Albania. But uh, we didn't manage to get a consensus uh, between the ones on the one side and the, and the other side uh, who wanted other, other, other solutions. We also acknowledge, this has to be said, that the process of enlargement has to be uh, rethought of, but we don't think it's incompatible to start negotiating with a country and at the same time reforming the process. I think, we think, many think that maybe in 2004, uh, we were a, a little bit too quick in accepting everybody at the same time. This is an open reflection, but maybe okay. we have to take some lessons from history. And about Kosovo, well, uh, you know, I mean, we want a solution. We want a solution uh, between Serbia and Kosovo. We are doing, uh, as a country, as a diplomacy, everything we can uh, to do to do that. Uh, my, my administration is making proposals, some have to be very discreet, logically. We're meeting uh, all the actors. But we believe, as a country, uh, our, our position is very well known, it's based on, on the UN uh, position after all, a position of non-recognition. But uh, we think that the, we must absolutely find a way towards a solution. And the way towards the solution cannot be putting pressure only, or almost only, on Serbia. When you see some of the measures of Kosovo in the recent uh, months or weeks, you know, 100% border tax or uh, militarization of police, it's not, I would hardly call that building uh, confidence. Mm. So uh, we think that we, there is a role to play for Spain, of course, for Germany, also for the U.S., but we all must find a solution to that. It will be, I think, extremely interesting and promising to see how my one of my mentors and friends and, <laughs> and still proven boss, uh, Giuseppe Borrell, will address this question. You might know that he announced in his hearing in the European Parliament that his first official mission will be to Pristina. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's a Spaniard what until now to uh, act binded or bound, you say, bound by the Spanish position. Mm. When he takes his own, his new office, it will be bound by the European Union approach. So it will be very interesting to see how he addresses that. I think that uh, instead of being a disadvantage, as some people fear, or some countries fear, it's Some people fear he won't have the credibility given his position. I think, so I think on the contrary, a, I think on the contrary, it's a very big advantage. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to give you any secret, but mm -hmm. our ambassador in Belgrade talks to his fellows ambassadors in Belgrade and also to his fellows ambassadors in Pristina, and it's interesting to see how some of the ambassadors of the countries who've recognized Kosovo a long time ago are converging with us on the need to maybe change the paradigm in the way we're approaching the question so that finally we can find solutions mm -hmm. there. Agreed. 
agreed solution. You know, if Serbia and Kosovo agree, agree on anything which is not breaking any international rule or is not uh, violating uh, the right of uh, citizens or people to live on their piece of land, if they agree, would be extremely happy to recognize Kosovo immediately. Mm-hmm. What, 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 but coming back to the question of enlargement, uh, if they agree, we're not going to be more. If they agree, we're right. never going to be more popist than the pope. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. What, what do you think the the broader implications are going to be for the region of not sending this signal to North Macedonia, at least as you say, which would have been an option? Do you fear, you know, as some people are talking about, more Russian influence, more attempts by? China and, and, and others to kind of uh, inject themselves into the politics of the region? Well, for a start, uh, elections have been anticipated elections have been announced in North Macedonia, so that's the first consequence. But yes, it's clear that, it's clear that, that, that Vladimir Putin and, and his administration have a policy of regaining the influence that the Serbian Empire and the Soviet Union as different as they were, always wanted to exert the influence on a geographical uh, zone that uh, that we partly share with them because they are their western neighborhood and they are our eastern neighborhood. If we are not giving at the right time the right signals to some of these countries, indeed there is a risk that uh, that they might turn around and look again maybe uh, towards the countries you mentioned like Moscow or even further. China. To, to make it simple, yes, of course, there is a risk, yes. You, you mentioned Josip Burrell, and I'd, I'd like to come back to him at the end because you, you have worked with him for, for quite a long time. What should Europe expect from Burrell in the coming years? Well, that's much much more for him to say that, and he said that in his hearing, but uh, I think that um, he has the ambition, the experience, the knowledge, the competence, and the uh, ideas to try and avoid all these situations where the European Union deplores, condemns, appeals, and all the verbs that you can imagine when confronted to international crisis, which is very important to do, to be united in saying things, of course, but maybe go a further step, uh, which is to act more, because it's been a fairly weak position to, up to now, right? I mean, it, it's, if you look at the, the well, not very much. Yeah, but uh, when, when we when we get when we get to important results and uh, and decisions, we're not always very much help. Look at the international agreement we reached with Iran. It's being destroyed by somebody we all know a little bit. Uh, more to the west when you cross the Atlantic. So, uh, but, but indeed, Mr. Borrell wants to use all the pot- possibilities and potentialities of the treaties, the so-called passerelles, which, which can uh, allow the European Union to take decisions on a majority basis, not always on a unanimity basis, at least when it comes to actions or missions uh, in, the, in the field of foreign policy or uh, sanctions when, when they need to be taken or maintained. And uh, uh, I mean, uh, his ambition is that the European Union must affirm itself in the ruling of the affairs of the world, not only as a soft power, but really existing also in the field of the in the field of defense, because uh, if the European Union doesn't do it, nobody will do it for it. Uh, we are in a, in a triangle composed by 
the U.S. with the president for the moment, and uh, this is a tendency which is not so easy to, to be changed, which is uh, every day more unilateralist, also telling us that uh, the uh, big brother defending also the European continent uh, is not exactly there anymore, that we have to take over our own defense. That's from one side. For the other side, I said the ambitions of... Uh, Putin's Russia of regaining influence in all senses, uh, in all aspects, uh, in, in a territory with which we have also very, very strong and, uh, and important relations, and this is uh, something we must address. And then China, who has been for a long time a giant, economically speaking, is every time more and more assertive geopolitically too. So uh, if we want to exist and, uh, and have a say in the uh, affairs of the world, geopolitically speaking, then we must use all the toolbox and all the instruments we have. And this is what Mr. Boyle wants to do. And it will need, uh, of course, um, some uh, change in the proceedings and some changes in the, in the habits of, uh, of, uh, of the European Union. But, you know, I mean... Uh, He's not completely at the start of his career, and he doesn't have much to lose. And he, he, he wanted, he accepted that job because, uh, because he thinks there's much, much, much to be done yet. Should, should we expect to see you with him in in Brussels uh, sometime soon? I don't think so. I mean, uh, I spent 32 years uh, <laughs> of my life in Brussels, and uh, he brought me back to Spain, which. Uh, which uh, I very much appreciated, but uh, I'm not going back to Brussels at the moment uh, with him. He has a lot of very good people, other than me, who will work with him, I'm sure. And uh, for the moment, I'm trying to do my job the best pos in the best possible way, and uh, we will see what happens in Spain in the next few weeks. But no, it's not in my intention immediately to go back to Brussels. Okay, that was Matt talking to Spain's Secretary of State to the EU, Marco Aguriano. And that's all we have time for in this episode of EU Confidential. So it's bye from Reem. Talk soon. Bye from Annabelle in London. Goodbye. And speak to you soon, Matt. Bye-bye. Okay, and if you like the podcast, do subscribe. Be sure to share it with your friends. And if you have any feedback at all for us, then email podcast at politico.eu. And we'll be happy to hear from you, almost always. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.